Hello, Soul Healing Sojourners, brothers and sisters. Are you ready to go for week five of a series, of a six-week series? Uh, I don't know if this is your first week or your fifth week, but we are in deep, and I beg you to make sure you get those foundational first three weeks, the content therein, however you can, uh, because we've been building on that. And so even though, I'll be honest, this morning's message is not your typical Sunday morning message, kind of last week's wasn't either. Um, it's just wonderful to have the opportunity to have some time to dwell and to get into some specifics of the very practical manner in which we can walk out and live in and receive healing from the wounds that we have. We can do that in Jesus because of his promise in Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. Are you ready? Are you buckled up? And so this might be a time when you pull out notebooks because this morning is quite the morning. So <laughs> I gave you fair warning, didn't I? Okay, so let's do it. So no discussion of soul healing, honestly, would be complete without what is, I'll be honest, lovingly known around the country for those who do the book and studies around the country as the weed out chapter. <laughs> Honestly, chapter four, when groups that are large get to chapter four, suddenly somehow they're winnowed down. I spoke in Dover, Ohio on Friday night, and one woman came up to me afterwards and she said, oh yeah, I love soul healing, except chapter four where I stopped for a long time. <laughs> and listen, there's no way to have a full presentation of the concepts covered in it today, but hopefully we can do enough so that if you identify or resonate with the ideas we discuss here, you can continue pursuing that path towards more freedom and joy in Jesus, particularly in the groups or whatever that were mentioned. Sound good? But before we jump into that, it's critically important to me that we never lose sight of the context for why we are focusing how we are. First and foremost, it's simply this. Number one, because 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, do not be unwise about the devil's schemes. As we established in week three, there is a clear and unrelenting attack on your faith every day taking place in the spiritual realms, which means in the deep places of our souls. So we must fight with the driver of that soul, our minds. All right. So the first one was what? Second Corinthians 2.11, which says, do not be unwise about the devil's schemes, right? There's an unrelenting spiritual tag going on in every one of us, which means we have to pay attention to the seat of that soul, the seat of our spirit, which is our mind, right? The thrust of scripture is towards us contending for truth in our minds over and over against fear, anxiety, doubt, discouragement, and disbelief in all forms. The second reason we are doing this, the second contextual reason we are doing this is because we are looking at how God restores all things. His very essence and energy is restoration. To take that which was intended to take us out and instead see God turn it around to become our secret reverse kryptonite <laughs> so that it's a place of deep strength and real power that was reflected in joseph's story in genesis 50 20 where he said what what satan meant for evil what you meant for evil satan god means for the good the saving of many lives that's your story and mine if we will let it be so in that same sentiment, before we talk about some challenging realities, I want us to lock into this reversal restoration context with just a few more scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Paul is giving us a picture. He says, but we have this treasure in clay, clay jars. That's us. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
You hear it? Isaiah 61.3, the words of the prophet talking to us about Jesus foreshadowing him. He said he's come to proclaim freedom for captives, to provide for those who grieve in Zion while you're walking. Ryan, will you give me my water? Thank you. <laughs> to provide for those who grieve in Zion, don't miss this, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Did you hear that? They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And that irritatingly awesome verse in Paul's, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says that the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for, do you know it? My power is made perfect in weakness, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And then John 12, 24, Jesus talks about having life from death. Do you see this restoration re reversal is all over God's word? Yes, do you see it? So in this great reversal business, we are commissioned to be about. Last week, we began looking specifically at wounds so that we can be transformed beyond the damage. Did you hear that phrase? Can we say that phrase? Why are we doing this? To be transformed beyond the damage. That's right. Because if we just let the damage be there, it'll rule us like we learned last week. And so the first type of wound that we looked at was a wound of commission, which is a wound, an emotional, an emotional wound where somebody does something to us that creates kind of a, a divot or a, a gouge or a cavity, if you will. And then a lie goes in if we don't deal with it. And then that lie can become a way of looking at life. And then patterns of behavior come about as a result of looking at life through the lens of a lie. You remember that? So the abuse survivor could have the lie, I'm only here to meet the needs of other people implanted at the time of the wound and only sees how people just want what he or she can offer them or do for them. So then they live out of the patterns of what? Never offering their opinion, not being able to say no, not using their own voice, and hey, even over-volunteering at church. So a second category of wounds that we're going to talk about and drill down for just a second this morning is wounds of omission. They're hurts we have because of negligence or ignorance or selfishness or woundedness of others in our lives. These fall more in the categories of neglect or something that you needed that you just didn't get for some reason. It wasn't intentional, but it still happened to you, and it's still something you face the consequences of, but again, was not necessarily done on purpose. Look at this. It's on your screens. These are important to understand because, here it is, our earliest relationship experiences shape how we view ourselves and those we love the most. So in the book, when I have time to explain it, I refer to this concept of vats, that we are kind of born with two large spaces within us to be filled with things that are required to form a personality and navigate life. They are created to be filled with unconditional, unidirectional love. And research long ago has proven time and again that babies deprived of love will die even though being fed and medically treated. So how full of unconditional love our vats were as we grew, were or were not, determines whether we feel like we're worthy of being loved. How full your vats were or were not determine whether we believe we're competent to get the love we need, determines whether we see others as reliable or not, determines whether others, we see them as willing to respond to us when we need them. The developmental needs during the various ages of childhood will determine the particular kind of attention, care, and concern that we long for 
when we're older? How much more so if those needs were unmet? Are you tracking? So if a woman, right, experienced a lack of unconditional love in her earliest itty-bitty years, then she's likely going to experience a protective, physically comforting person as very loving. Can you see the connection? Because those were the needs she was missing when she was a baby. If a man finds great comfort and love in a mentor-like relationship with someone who is consistent and affirming, yet who trusts his independence and decision-making, he might have experienced the least amount of unconditional love in what years? Can you figure it out? His adolescent years. Can you see the connection? See, these needs we have were created for fulfillment, and we cannot ignore or deny that they exist. All humans long for unconditional love. These attachment and formation needs we have were in essence created to kind of throb fulfilling. And they'll continue to drive us, hear me, in their fulfillment or unfulfillment. That means they're going to keep impacting our behavior significantly, whether they were filled or not. But clearly the unfulfillment creates problematic ways of behaving today. So when we have filled, excuse me, unfilled vats, those are unmet developmental needs you can see it on your screen. The damage here is that we have deficits that result that we unwittingly seek to fill or compensate for. So assessment in these areas of attachment can provide many clues to our present day struggles to experience intimacy with God and especially with others. This isn't an exact science. It's kind of an intuitive exercise. And if you're struggling with this concept a bit, perhaps thinking of it this way will help. If a child was locked in a closet for the first four years of life, he or she, their physical and chemical makeup would actually be different, wouldn't it? Right? So lack of developmental needs does the same. It's the same if the two-year-old does not get calcium, he or she's not going to be able to be a soccer, professional soccer player when older because that was a critical component at two years old that they must have to successfully and strongly navigate adult life. In the same way that calcium is critical, so is unconditional love. So considering at what particular age the unmet needs were deprived provides important help for us to see what kind of result can occur. Ages zero to five, right? Those needs for unconditional love are different from ages six to 11, are different from ages 12 to 14. So for instance, if your emptiest vat is 12 to 14, then you're gonna go around looking for people to acknowledge you as your own person. Right? If it's 6 to 11, you're going to want so much time with people, and you're going to have them be like identity, like responders to you, like help me figure out who I am. Can you see it? So everyone has something to learn from such exploration. We were all children once, and whatever elements existed in our formation live on in us now, whether positive or negative. So the goal is to kind of see where your emptiest vat was, which stage. What happens is that the particular form of unconditional love called for by the growing soul, if not provided, will shape the adult's idea of what being loved feels like. So when we're out of touch with any deficits, here's what we tend to do. We unwittingly take, try to take a fuller vat. So a fuller vat would be a relationship, a good relationship of love and connection. And what we try to do is we unconsciously try to dump that ish, shove that into the deficient area. Right? 
We take the vats that are the fullest in our lives and try to dump them into those that are the emptiest. In other words, we try to have others make restitution for that which was wrong or left undone when we were younger. Take Mike, for instance. He's a great provider, a faithful friend, a loyal supporter, a consistent presence, a fun companion, a respectful leader, a wise counselor, and an incredible father. He's done a great job of meeting my needs as a spouse. And yet, there are days when I think he just does not approve of me enough. He just does not pay enough tender or doting attention to me. He just does not give me what I need. I want him to be nuts about me unconditionally loving, like I could just spit up in his face, yell at him or cry unconsolably all day, and he would still say, I'm crazy about you. <laughs> Can you hear what need presses through there, what stage it's from? Those are longings for a daddy, not a husband. The reason we can't go along looking for another person to fill our empty places is simply because they can't. Each vat was for one person, one time. This is why people we were once so hopeful about are now a complete disappointment to us. Because no matter how hard they try, it's not theirs to fill, they can't. In myriad groups, I ask the question, from whom do you most wanna hear I'm proud of you? And resoundingly, even shockingly to some people who answer it, the answer is either their mother or father. My question is, is it from abundance? Or deficit. So again, while this conversation is literally too big for such a short message and you're doing great, we're just trying to gain a modicum of wisdom about why some relational aspects might be creating frustration and futility with those we love the very most. So to help you see, if you're living from wounds of omission, here's some evidence. Number one is discontentment, that you're unable to be satisfied, that you have widespread disappointment. It's the, it's the case where people experience the same relational problem over and over. How many times have we heard someone decry that every roommate or boyfriend or boss they ever had has been unfair, unkind, unjust? At, at what point do we then turn the tables and realize that the common denominator, the one constant in these situations, is us? If we're not aware of what we're doing, you can see it visually, we can be placing expectations on the people we love the most that they cannot meet. As is obvious, the problem is that no matter how excellent the person, friend, or spouse is, he or she cannot undo our inner longing for those close connections we were meant to enjoy as we grew and developed. No one in the present can fulfill our past. The perfect husband can and never should be the perfect daddy, dad, or father. An amazing wife while nurturing and caring should not replace what you didn't get from your mom. So if we don't know what we're doing, we can unintentionally place unmeetable expectations on the people we love and appreciate the most. I mean, we all know we treat the ones that we love the most the worst. Amen? What's that about? This is in play. And if we have pervasive discontentment with them, this is often evidence that we have residue from these wounds of omission. So while you have a great friend or mentor, when you start wanting to wrestle a 17 instead of a 10 out of relationship, you're trying to get them to fill another spot, which is not theirs to fill. He's a spouse, not a daddy. She's a friend, not your mother. She's a boss, but she can't be like a mom to you. He's a pastor. He can't take the place of your absent father. 
a second way we can tease out whether we have wounds of omission operating in our lives is by seeing our knee-jerk reactions and oversensitivities to certain types of people. Oh, none of you have those? I'll just move on then. Okay. <laughs> For example, people with certain wounds of omission almost expect to be betrayed and abandoned. Because in the past, their support figures have repeatedly let them down. Some are oversensitive to being ignored and feeling invisible. Me, I have an oversensitive. I enjoy the breadth of people like nobody's business. I love all kinds of people. It's my favorite thing. It's only one kind that I find myself having a reaction to, and those are what I call Eeyore people. Mm -hmm. I get irritated real quickly when I judge someone to be pervasively negative. That has come directly from an anxiety-bound mother who would only ever talk about her stressors and never engage my hungry-for-heart, little hungry-for-connection little girl heart. Recently, I sat with a friend who had issues with his controlling grandma, and now he finds himself overreacting to a woman in his small group today. Everything is through the grid of, why'd she say that? Distrust. He's identified one of his unmet developmental needs. I refer to this as being plucked. Ah, ah, it's as though something hooks you and starts to take you away, right? We gotta pay attention to when we're plucked. And when you are, you can ask yourself if perhaps this is tapping on an unmet developmental need and adjust your reactions according to your unsuspecting friend or family member. There was a person that used to uh, be a person that called me regularly and, because of how we needed to interact in a ministry context. And I had to look at my phone first and before I answered, be like, do I feel like an 11-year-old right now or am I the 40-something-year-old that I was at the time? I literally have to stop and assess that because I didn't want to set him up for failure, nor me. Okay. I'm taking a turn, and it's a whatever the case, whatever the case. So here's an important whatever the case, whatever your situation, whether you're sitting here stunned because you realize you have tremendous unmet needs bleeding onto your relationships today, <laughs> or whether you're confused about how your overreaction to receiving compliments might have something to do with this, <laughs> or whether you're thanking God for the great upbringing you had and realizing you might be a little obtuse when it comes to sensitive, being sensitive to others you deem as needy, realizing they might not be needy, they might have scars. This is an important whatever the case, that in your diabolical enemy's sights is shame. Shame is hell's intention for either type of wound, omission or commission. A major billboard advertising the presence of evil messing with us through our wounds is shame. When we receive wounds growing up, we often come to believe that some part of us, maybe every part of us, is marred. That is different than having a sin nature and in joyful confession living in the forgiveness freedom Jesus purchased us. That's different. Shame is the feeling that haunts us. The sense that if someone really knew us, they would shake their heads in disgust and run away. Shame makes us feel, no, believe, that we don't measure up not to the world's standards, not to the church's standards, not to our own standards. Shame eclipses, I made a mistake. I did something bad with I am a mistake. I am bad. Shame can often be recognized as should. When you hear that word, boop, shame. And always results in shutdown, paralysis, imprisonment, or hiding in some way. So please, from this day forward, don't ask if you struggle with shame, but how you are, okay? Like, how is it coming out in your life? Okay, I wanted to take a second for us to process that, but we don't have time, so let's keep moving. But I want you to just take that about shame. 
that it's probably trying to, it is for sure, some way in which evil's trying to mess with you. How is it showing up in your life? So, what do we do with this stuff, Tammy? <laughs> right, what do we do with it? Well, here's an overly simplistic tool I made as a general guide to navigating all woundedness, wounds of commission or omission, to age, to age. <laughs> to undistort and really see God's plan and purpose in light of these truths, we age. A is to, do you see it? Accept. This is my thing. This is how I've been wounded. It's not that I'm just needy or ridiculous or crazy. I have so many people in their most vulnerable moments look at me and say, tell me I'm not crazy. Folks, it's, the, it's just this, that the things that have formed us have formed us and they live on in some form in us today. The key you look up to most in this room could walk outside, trip over some curb and let out a creative litany of expletives <laughs> that you're like, <gasps> be like, no, that's their thing. Like, we'll see everybody's thing over time, won't we? <laughs> be in relationship long enough and be like, wow, there it is. Okay. <laughs> we have to accept that our pains, our wounds, our suffering, especially those not our fault. Friends, they're still our problem. We have to be willing to take ownership of our patterns, of our addictions, of the lies that are being thrown at us. Charles Stanley said, the first step in overcoming temptation is to stop deceiving yourself into thinking that someone or something else is responsible for your actions. Our lives will not eventually reflect peace and joy if we do not accept that our wounds and everything that resulted from them, they are now our responsibility. And then when we do that, after we accept what has occurred to us, here it is, G, to grieve. If we do not grieve our losses, we will become stunted. We literally get stopped up with our undealt with pain. Friends, grief over the brokenness of self, others, and the world is an inescapable part of our lives. So what is grief? Look at the screens. It's simply a reaction to any loss. Losses can range from the loss of employment, pets, status, friends, or possessions to the loss of the people nearest us. And while different losses may have different circumstances and intensities, all involve similar grief processes. There is grief for every legitimate loss, not just for the ones that involve caskets. This is a challenge that many people associate grief so closely with death and tears that unless those are present, they're not aware of their own grief or need to grieve. Grief just happens when we ponder what might have been. It's the process of coming to grips with the truth that things won't ever be what they were before this. Grief over emotional wounds can come when we consider, what would it have been like if blank hadn't happened? If my parents hadn't divorced, if... He or she hadn't touched me like that. If she hadn't said that to me, what would I be like if I didn't have to fight this inner insecurity, self-hatred, eating disorder every day? What kind of person would I be if not for this sexual abuse? What would my life have been like had my dad not died? Who would I have been with the love and support of two committed parents? How would I be different if Sarah hadn't betrayed my trust so violently in seventh grade? Grief is just the contemplation, contemplation of all that loss costs us and any emotions which accompany such thoughts. It underscores that's not the way life is supposed to go. And that's a whole message. You want me to do it later? Yeah. Yet every loss is a loss and all losses to be fully accepted must be grieved. Listen, we don't malign the person who grieves over a lost pet, yet we're willing to disparage ourselves for not being able to just get over our past shaping events. 
I grieve the fact that I never had and never will have a mom who will call me to see how I'm doing, who will bring me a meal during a time of stress, or will pray with me on the phone. Who would I have been if I would have that? I grieve the fact that I only had girls. I have daughters-in-law now, but when I was raising them, I only had girls. I, I grieve over the fact that I didn't start playing tennis till I was an adult. I grieve that. I grieve for Mike, that he came from Beaver Cleaver, and he had to marry Dysfunction Junction. <laughs> I do. You be nice to him. <laughs> but listen to me. Sucking it up is counter to grief. We're not going to heal if we're stuffers. It'll keep coming and coming until we pay attention to it. That's the nature of grief. That's what it does. But because grief over emotional wounds is more optional than grief over a physical loss, such as death, we can keep ourselves from it for a very long time. Many people in reality live like this, just pushes stuff down. It's become a way of life. They numb out. They shut it out. They keep busy. They pull it together. Whether unconsciously or excuse me, consciously or unconsciously, countless people ignore their emotional states and simply shove it away out of sight. So many of us have developed a habit of shoving hurts down. Honestly, mostly because we didn't know what else to do, right? But I'll say it's like what we do is it's if we have a huge like armoire, you know, armoire, huge armoire, and that houses the hurts that we don't feel, the losses we don't grieve, and the pain that we don't acknowledge, we shove it in there. We watch movies, we read fiction, we scroll endlessly, we shop, we stay busy, we eat and on and on in unconscious escape mechanisms to keep from pace, facing pain at our losses and life's brokenness. And sadly, I found that people who live this way not only seem successful, but are often lauded as spiritual. They're, listen, right? Let's be clear. The Bible doesn't tell us to sidestep grief. For goodness sake, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. Lament is the biblical term for grief. So if you're shoving, it will not work forever. Our emotional system can only handle so much undealt with pain. Seen through this formulation, depression is like a message from your emotional system going, psst, psst, done, no more room, arm waffle. There's not one more square inch to house, unprocessed, unfelt emotion and pain. Researcher James Pennebaker has provided so many uh, studies on this topic. It's fascinating. And he has found direct connections to unexpressed emotion, pain, and secrets that they have a massive impact on our physical being. Direct. But right, it's just human nature not to want to feel the pain of our lives and losses. I've had person after person just look at me and say, I'm afraid that if I open up, I'll never stop crying. Or I really think if I go there, I won't be able to continue living my life. While shoving things down may seem to have been helping you, it will eventually let you down. Whether depression is increasing or the outbursts are coming more and more in anger, or your thoughts have taken you places you never thought they would, please see how the armoire prevents us from living free, authentic, hopeful, peaceful lives in Jesus. So a suggestion for grieving is to ride the wave. That's what it does. It waxes and wanes for sure. And I mean, when it comes, it sure is a pain. Just, let, just ride it. It will wane. 
There's a biblical truth loosely said that offers the principle, what's in the dark grows and what's in the light shrinks. That reminds me of grief. And you know, James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another, to confess, to let people into what's going on inside of us. What does the end of that verse say? So that you may be healed. Not so that they may condemn you and be like, whoa, something to talk about. So that you may be healed. There's so much goodness in airing up what's really going on in your souls. So as we accept all that life has brought us and grieve the ways in which it hasn't gone how we thought and that it's actually hurt us, those actions then enable us to be able to do E, which is to embrace. It's owning that this is my story and all that it contained. And you don't get there to embrace unless you grieve and unless you understand and deal with shame in your life. And your story, like everyone's, right, has highs and lows. This is because, maybe you didn't know this, maybe this will just be the thing you need to hear this morning. This is because for the time we live in, all of life is lived on the two rails of joy and grief. We are like trains and life is like a track. And most effectively, our train will run on the trails of joy and grief. If we try to run on just run one railway... We will be like a train out of control or at best teetering. And I think there are some versions of Christianity that try to just say this is the only railing. And Jesus didn't say that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, grief. But take heart, I've overcome the world, joy. To embrace means living on the two rails of joy and grief. Every joyful moment, you know it, you can find a little sting of grief, a little, little dot of grief. And even the most grievous moments, you can find a modicum of joy. I see this as Ecclesiastes 7.18, just wisdom. It says, it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. A man of wisdom avoids all extremes. Our whole life is a both-and life. Here's this quote by John Piper. Look at it with me if you would. It says, occasionally, weep over the life you had hoped would be. Grieve the losses and wash your face. Trust God and embrace the life you have. We don't embrace until we grieve. And I wasn't going to share this, but the Lord was like, poop, stuck it into my face as I pulled out of the driveway really early this morning and ran into my beautiful neighbor, Casey. Today is the two-year anniversary of Pat, 34-year-old, father of three babies, ginormous spirit. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe his personality and his welcoming, bigger-than-life awesomeness, athletic, beautiful self. This is the anniversary of his homegoing. And so today, we're going to honor that with Quinny, who's seven, and Hazel, who's five, and Everett, who's now three. And Casey has been doing a great job of moving through grief, and it's just about Gilder. And she's doing a great job of embracing the life she now has. So today she's having a party with all the neighborhood and everybody in the new pad so we can continue living the beautiful life they created together. Are you embracing the challenges you have? Or are you bemoaning, stuck in a victim, victim mentality? Hey, our friend Tessa talks about grief for a second. Let's look at it real quick. For me, soul healing has looked a lot of 
like realizing how much grief is involved in healing, that to heal from our wounds and to heal from things that have hurt us, we actually have to grieve it. Even if it's not a death, it's still something we've lost and to know that that's okay. And that's actually the first step to further healing is to see those wounds in myself and grieve them and allow the Lord to just really care for me in those. Yeah. Um, and that's really how I've experienced a lot of soul healing in my own life. So by way of pulling this all together, <laughs> how you doing by the way? <laughs> You're doing great. So by way of pulling this all together, all that we have to this point, do you believe that through your failures and faults, God can bring something more stunning? Through your wounds and your washouts that God can transform you into a luminous soul whose way of living is baffling except for the gospel. Come on. She forgave him. What? They gave how much money to the church? What? They reached out to that coworker? Oh, they took a neighbor. They took a meal to that neighbor? Do you actually believe generational curses can stop with you? Come on. That predispositions to certain patterns of sin that have gripped your family for years can be put to death on your watch. Schemes of hell, including everything from alcoholism to little white lies to financial mismanagement to mental instability can be quelled as you fully and squarely place yourself in the hands of the healer. This is why we've done this whole series. Because these things are not only possible, they are yours and mine in Christ. Let's go. Philippians 1.12. Remember last week, Paul gave it to us. I want you to know, brothers, that whatsoever has happened has really served to advance the gospel. Can you grab hold of that for your own life? And these kinds of verses, promises from God are so impactful, right? So one that I hold on to myself, but many people that I've walked with hold on to is Joel 2.25. I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. God sees and knows many of what we feel like are our best years have been nibbled up by lies, difficulty and hardship. But if we keep holding onto him despite the storms and the years, we will see his beautiful restoration plan. We will. And of personally sweet significance to me, church family, that I'm just going to share with you, was, was that a few years after formulating the VAT conceptualization and many years after claiming Joel 2.25 with folks, which is, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, I read the verse preceding it. And guess what it said? Look at it. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The Vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I'll repay you for the years of locusts of Eden. I was like, a reference to vats and the holy word of God? It was a giddy yet truly profound moment for me. The tool that he gave me that's been so helpful in helping folks navigate developmental trauma and developmental deficits was paired with allusions to new wine and oil in scripture. These are so incredibly rich, so much that I can't capture it here, but maybe you don't know. Oil symbolically refers to the Holy Spirit and new wine represents, excuse me, the gospel or Jesus. <laughs> 
What we have laid out for us in this Joel passage is a picture of our promise for healing. And from that truth, we will be repaid for the years the locusts have eaten. In other words, the places of previous pain will now be filled with joy and victory and faith and hope and love and faith and hope and love. And that is by the overflowing more than we could ever need provision of the Holy Spirit and Jesus. <laughs> He'll do it, my friends. He'll do it. He'll do it. You've done a great job of engaging, whoo, not only a lot, but maybe things you hadn't thought about ever in this way or ever. And so I want to point out, John, are you there? John's in the, raise your hand there. John in the back, I can't quite see. And then we got Adam over here and we've got Mary, where are you? Mary's also there. They're gonna go over to the overflow room and do not miss a moment to just pray for whatever God has brought up to you. It's the most powerful part of the morning, to be honest, to use the community and the prayer opportunity that we have to just pray together for all that God has for our lives. So please go hang out with John or Mary or Adam and just tell them, I don't know what to say, just pray. <laughs> but you guys have been amazing. And so Jesus, I pray you'd seal everything that you've wanted to do this morning and all the ways in which you've wanted to speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you seal it now as only you can. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for how truth guides us every day of our lives. Thank you for each one here. Wow. I'm in awe of him or her. Thank you, Lord. Amen.